Hi, and welcome to Bootstrap, The Lighter Side, where entrepreneurs who have grown successful startups from the ground up share their inspiring stories. In each episode, you'll hear from accomplished founders about starting a business, managing a runway, and raising capital on their terms. I am Melissa Widner, the CEO of Lighter Capital, a leader in founder-friendly, non-dilutive funding. Visit lightercapital.com to learn more. On today's show, we're talking with Rebecca Johnson, the CEO and founder of Numerical, which is one of Lighter Capital's portfolio companies. Hi, Rebecca. It's great to have you here today. Thanks, Melissa. It's so good to be here. I'm looking forward to our chat. Well, I'm just going to get right into it. Um, Let's start with, could you please give us a brief description of Numerical? Yep. So very simply, our mission is to restore trust in communications. And right now for us, that starts at voice. Uh, About five, six years ago, outbound voice calls were being labeled as fraud or spam, which if you have any of the major wireless carriers, you're familiar with those tags. Unfortunately, legal businesses, whether it's hospitals, schools, retail, commercial, banks, they were all impacted by having their calls labeled fraud or spam. So that's how my company got started was to solve that problem for businesses so that they could continue to use the voice channel to communicate. Okay, wonderful. Rebecca, you have a very interesting background in terms of how you got to this place. And I'd love to dig into that a little bit. I I really think back to on, you know, when people ask me why I start this, I think most people start companies because they're like, oh, I got a really cool idea. I think that things will be better if I invent this thing. For me, it truly was a calling. I felt like I had to. There was no other choice. This is literally a calling on my life. So I've been in the communication space for well over a decade, focused in technology. Uh, My background is uh, in technology. So I was a code slinger when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and uh, found myself in the communication space, first focused on healthcare communications and enabling hospitals and organizations to deliver important calls to patients. And while I was uh, on that journey, I found my way over into the regulatory side because I actually wanted to be a lawyer when I grew up. Um, But when I graduated college, they were just paying way too much (laughs) for tech people (laughs) in the late 90s, early 2000s. So my parents are like, "Uh uh-uh, you just go to work, pick any offer and go. Now, um, a woman back in the 90s uh, choosing, you know, coding for a career or even really being interested in coding um, was quite rare. So how did that come about? Are you from a family of software engineers? Well, no, but I, I grew up in a lab. My mom is this brilliant chemist. And um, I witnessed, I mean, she had a she didn't have a babysitter, so she brought me to the lab and she was a GC MassVec. Uh, technician, and she sat me in front of a computer, and a computer is what kept me entertained. So I just kind of became obsessed with computers, and I actually got to witness my mother. She's she was the one writing those crazy formulas, like on the whiteboard. And these gentlemen would come in, and they'd ask my mom all these questions because they were taking my mom's brain essentially and creating what we have today as a laboratory information management system. And so I got to witness. I'm like, well, this is interesting. They're going to take all that work and. And then they're going to put it on a computer and they're going to have computer to computer talking like this is me in elementary and middle school and high school. So um, my actual first programming job was for a laboratory information management system company. So it was kind of neat that at 19 years old, I was doing equipment maintenance and calibration programming. And you were studying computer science at that time. Yes. In university. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
because I thought this is really fun. And, and it was one of those things too, that it came really easy. So I think that's why I wanted to be a lawyer. Cause I thought, well, I need to do something that's really hard. <laughs> I didn't think computers were that hard. Were you one of the only women studying that field at that time or that major at your university? So I went to LSU. I was at Louisiana State University. What was really interesting is that actually in my university program, I felt like there was, you know, enough women, you know, in the field that I didn't feel like I stood out, but I was also working in the real world. So I would go to tech ed conferences. That's the Microsoft tech ed. And then that's when it actually hit me that I was like, oh, and, and what was funny is it was because there was no line at the bathroom. I, here I am like, I'm like 19 and I'm like, there's a line for the men's restroom, but there's no line for women. I was like, what's going on? And the joke was, well, there's no women here. So, um, and it's, you know, it, there's definitely more adoption of women in the industry. We have a long ways to go uh, to yeah. be, um, for our opinions to be respected, um, to not be patronized. And, but I, I've just learned to respond to it, uh, react to it. And I don't just sit there and smile and take it. Okay, so you came out in, I mean, a well, it's been any time in the last few decades has been a great time to have a degree in computer science in terms of job opportunities. Yep. So you came out and went right into that field and walk us, walk us through post-college. I had an interesting uh, job after the laboratory phase. I actually worked at a government contracting called uh, Innovative Emergency Management. It is run by a woman who I learned a lot in leadership on how to run a tech, tech company, but this one was all focused about demilitarizing our weapons of mass destruction. So here I am in my 20s again, <laughs> taking on a big task of developing and doing the quality assessment of the solutions that our military used to basically get rid of our weapons uh, in a safe you know, manner. So that taught me a lot about how to bring groups of people together with different opinions. We had the federal government had their objectives. We had states had their objectives and the military had their objectives. How do you get all of these groups to agree upon what are the requirements? Um, how are we going to proceed forward and how are we going to spend funds? So I learned a lot in that particular role. And then I went from that role into communications and then have been in communications ever since. I also had a stint there where I had a couple of children. So yeah. that was terrifying to take time off. I was a stay-at-home mom for about two and a half years and technology advances fast. So there was a lot of anxiety going back into the workforce, thinking that my knowledge was no longer relevant. And I mean, that was, mm -hmm. that was scary <laughs> to think yeah. I had spent all this money on a degree, built up my career, and then took a pause. And I learned a lot of lessons in that. I learned that I could come back very quickly and I hadn't lost all of that knowledge, uh, but that's still, I, I'm very sensitive of that, even within my own company. I think we still have a long ways to go on how we treat women when they do take that time off and bring them back into the workforce. Yeah. So walk us through, at what point did you think, I want to start a company and do one yeah. of the hardest things there is to do with the lowest probability of probabilities of success. Was this something, you know, did you have a Kool-Aid stand when you were five years old? Was, were you a, a budding entrepreneur from, from day one, or did this happen later in life? I definitely was a budding entrepreneur. It's the only thing I know. And, and my siblings are the same way. We're all very self-motivated, self-driven individuals. And that's a direct reflection of our parents. I have wonderful, wonderful parents who really instilled in us uh, how to be independent and how to be problem solvers. But um, one of the things about starting the company is um, I, I think I have to you know, share with the listeners the reality because I don't like to paint pictures that things are easy at all. 
I was married and had two children in elementary school, so that's a challenge as it is. I had a really good career, and I enjoyed my career. But January of 2017, um, my ex-husband basically left me and the kids. So very quickly, I'm like, whoa, I'm a single-income household. And um, I did the process that most women are taught, like, hey, if you're being underpaid and you're not being valued in the company, because I wasn't at my current job, you apply to, you know, at least have a conversation of, hey, I need to have this corrected. And I went down that path. I made it everything about what I contributed to the company. Definitely don't make the statements of, I need help financially. Give me more money. It's really got to be about the business and what you're bringing. Mm. And unfortunately, once I did that, a matter of about five days later, I was fired. So I actually started the company out of necessity for survival. Um, You were imminently employable. There were probably easier things to do in terms of going and getting another job, but you chose to take a hard path. That's where that calling came. (laughs) I felt truly obligated. Right at the time of like my my personal life is going in the tanks. The industry was starting to realize that, uh, and I say industry, I mean like the wireless carriers, AT&T, Verizon, Mm -hmm. T-Mobile, started to realize that um, these strategies that we had worked on and I was a part of working on to label calls as fraud or spam or informational, whatever these labels were, I I sent some red flags up that, hey, I think there's going to be a problem. There's going to be a lot of legal calls that are getting caught. So at the time that my life is going down, um, I get this phone call. And uh, it was from one of the major wireless carriers. And they said, everything you said was going to happen is happening. And we're taking your stance. What do we do? So it literally was like a calling in that perspective. And despite what was happening in my personal life, I was like, I... I can't live with myself if I don't do something about this. So I went all in. I I personal finance and just kicked it off to at least explore to see if there was something to do. And here we are five years later and I have competitors. So that's validation. It's a real space. Yeah. Yeah, Like (laughs) that's which is really weird because it's like I created this market and you're you're just following what we did. It's it's bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Was it really like it was just so obvious you had to do it or did you, was this something you struggled with for days, weeks, months before leaping in? No, I'll tell you what, I got fired May 5th around 7 p.m. and I launched my company May 6th in the morning. I'm not (laughs) kidding. (laughs) I just cried till about 2 a.m. I was like just tears and I looked myself in the mirror and um, I was like, I didn't recognize the person coming looking back and I thought, you know, no, I've, I've, I've got to do this. I got to do this for this industry. So how, how did you fund those early days? So um, I used my personal life savings, drained it hundred <laughs> percent. Um, wow. um, and then I went to my parents and had like, you know, a conversation about what I was doing. I mean, my dad, all honesty was like, you've got children, you need to get a job. Um, but I was like, dad, it's a calling and I got to do this. And, and, and I just knew it wouldn't fail. Like it couldn't fail. Like it was just one of these things I'm like, it's going to work. So my parents, who are phenomenal, they're like, all right, we believe in you. So they funded uh, the initial. And my parents, again, uh, my dad was like, look, if this whole thing tanks, you don't, don't worry about it. Um, he, you know, yeah. we're just believers of our money's here for a purpose. Uh, when we die, we don't take it with us. So my dad's like, if this is your calling, then that's what it's here for. So give it a shot. From there, so you had your seed capital. Now your yep. your customers are wireless carriers. That has one of the longest sales cycles in like the history of sales cycles. So yeah. you know it's 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 probably a long time from yeah. you know getting going, setting up the company to actually getting revenue. Yeah. Well, so that, so that so you're true on 
an extremely long sales cycle. So they're actually yeah. not my customer. So that was one okay. of the strategies. I knew that because I came from communications and I really put some thought in how do I solve this problem to where I don't need the carrier as a customer. Right. And mm. so the carriers were my first focus, though, on how do we create a solution in the marketplace. So they sat at a table with me where and it was called Communications Protection Coalition. We got together and we're like, this is a problem that we need to solve. How do we move an entire industry? And so what I was doing was focusing on how do I make this a solution for the enterprise and put the enterprise in control, which means the enterprise is the one purchasing the solution. So it was very strategic on mm. how do we get this right. This included also FCC filings to be done. Like there's some rulings around this as well. It was a huge effort. And and from the time you set up the company to the time you had your first customer. Oh, it was in the first year. So a little word of advice. If you ever find yourself in a situation where you're like, there's a problem and I need to figure out how to solve it. Set yourself up as a consultant first. That's what I did. So I had two Fortune 100s that were my first clients and did it under a contract, closed out my first year at 167000 for revenue. That's first year of existence. Um, and then it's just grown after that. So that was kind of unique uh, from that perspective, but I learned. I learned a lot. How did you convince other people to go on this journey with you? Because I assume when you got that first customer, you you weren't the sole employee in the company at that time. So one of my uh, founders, Peter Licata, he was kind of at the end of his career of like one last thing to do is a Silicon Valley and the really fun times built companies, sold them. And it was just a weird happenstance that we met through a mutual friend and I had a phone conversation with him. He was the first person that got everything that I said. And like believed in me. And he goes, I got I got to come meet you. So he meets me in D.C. while I'm speaking before the carriers and enterprises. And he sits me down in the lobby. It's my first time meeting him. And he looks at me, he goes, you're my last hoorah. Let's do this. <laughs> I just met him for the first time. But sometimes you meet people and there's just that undeniable connection. And it's just a connection. Like, oh, yeah. yes. And I had full trust. And I was like, OK. And he believed in me. And he helped find my chief product officer. So he already knew some people. He's like, let's do this together. And those are you know, still the founding team I have today. It, that was a blessing. That's such a great story. All right. So first year, um, revenue of 167000 which is great. And then walk us through to today, because you're on this incredible growth trajectory. And how, uh, especially since... Lighter Capital is in the business of providing funding. We'd love to hear about your funding story and how you got to where you are today. Did you take dilution along the way? You know, how you thought about financing your company for growth. Yeah, Melissa, I think that there's definitely some lessons uh, in this first journey. So I think one of the natural things that founders do is once they have like a little bit of revenue, right? Someone's someone's buying your idea. So you're like, okay. Now it's time to go really explosive and grow. So I did what everybody does. And you think that the only place to get funding is from VCs. It's yeah. it's really glamorized. Um, yes. So I went on the VC bandwagon and, and realized I was the show. Like I became <laughs> part of the show. Um, so, uh, you know, here we are going in front of all of these VCs, pitching our ideas. And it just wasn't progressing. It wasn't getting us anywhere other than, hey, that's a cool idea. That looks fun, but we're just not going to invest in you. 
I walked out of an event in Boston where it was this like competition thing, whatever you go through. And of course they didn't select us. And I remember walking out and I said, you know what, forget this. If I could put the amount of effort that I put into trying to convince people to invest in us and I put that back into the company, I bet we do great. And that's exactly what yeah. we did. I mean, yeah. it was just boom. We started to skyrocket um, at that point. So 167 and then over 700,000 the next year. So that, that kind of growth I'm good with. <laughs> Um, so focused on that, and we'd never took, uh, you know, VC institutional funding, and never had to give up equity from that perspective. Yeah, and your story is is a common one for lighter capital customers, in that some of them were against taking any dilutive capital from the get go, but um, there are other ones that actually tried. They spent time, you yeah. know, trying to raise um, equity capital. And I know I, 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 we talked about this before. I was a VC for the better part of two decades, right. and you know, as a VC, you're in the rejection business and saying no 99 times for every one time you say yes. You know, you're saying no to lots of great entrepreneurs. Um, I think it's the worst part of of that job, but you were able to grow with revenue, which not every company can. I mean, a a lot of companies need a lot of funding before they can even get their first dime because of the nature of their product. So so when you think of future growth now, how are you looking at that? We have a lot of our companies that do go on and and take, you know, an equity round later when they, you know, when they need more capital than they can get from debt. Or are you looking at growing, you know, without ever diluting you know, um, definitely staying up with financials, I will say, um, for startups, uh, finance should be with you on day one, you should be structuring your books and understanding, even if you don't have a profit and loss yet, um, th- there's numbers that you can track. So I am very much obsessed about running the company based off of the numbers and financial projections built on uh, past patterns and behaviors, and then you can make some assumptions. So I say that because that to me helps understand. And and here's our I'll, I'll share with others. This is our lighter cap. This is our lighter capital strategy here. We know what our runway is, and then we stay very close with lighter on what are the options based on our revenue for additional funding. I think everybody should be looking at that on a monthly basis and maintain that relationship uh, with lighter. So. We keep looking at that and that tells us, do we need to get VC funding based on what what our strategies are as an organization, what the market can bear? Because I could go get 30 million in funding, but where am I going to spend it? Like, does that make sense? It it, it Mm. might not. So that's our strategy. So I can't predict what a year from now is, but I definitely can predict the next six months. Um, And we put lighter as our first option because it's an easy thing to work with and get access to and just keep you informed of where we're at. I think that's the best solution. Yeah, it's an easy formula. We always, I always say, use it as as your back pocket strategy. You know, we provide a multiple of your MRR and it's, you know, depending on the company size between four and six, six X. So as companies grow, they can take more, but you have that in your back pocket that, you know, that you can access that those funds. Yep. And as you know, if you're an existing customer, it takes, you know, days to access a, you know, subsequent rounds. But but I I, I know as an entrepreneur myself that it's just incredibly freeing when you're looking at different strategies to know that, okay, 
you know, this isn't one that's necessarily dependent on going out and having hundreds of conversations and finding somebody that right. might be willing to support it. Right, right. But we still keep investors on, you know, uh, keep those relationships warm. But I think once you get to that point where you do have a nice runway with some debt funding, be very specific in who you talk to. They really should be contributing far more than money. They should be making your organization better. They should be networking you. And, and I think legit, valid investors, they're going to constantly be reaching out to you as well. So we have this relationship with quite a few um, on when's the right time. If there is a right time, we know each other well enough that we know who we're going to call on because, I mean, we've got some explosive growth coming up and maybe the revenue that we're making doesn't cover all the resources that we need to hire. So we might need a mm -hmm. huge injection. I, you just don't know, but it's yeah. smart to keep those on the ready. Uh, but the, mm. but you can reduce that size, get real comfortable with a few, as opposed to starting that process when you really should be closing the process, then you're behind. One more thing that I want to touch on um, is culture and team. And mm -hmm. we got to know you because um, your current CFO, we had worked with him in a previous company and he had a you know thriving fractional CFO business. And he decided to stop that and go all in on numerical, which, you know, he's he's a great guy yes. and had a good business. So that that just speaks a lot for, you know, you you and, um, you know, the the prospects that he saw for this company. And you know, look, he, he's we know him. He's a smart guy. So he gets to see a lot of different companies. For So for him to jump in all in on one company is a big deal. So yep. talk to us a little bit about, you know, how you've created that culture that that attracts great people to give up their companies and come on board. I, I think this is how I approach just even my personal life. I am very big on on humans, right? Like those are the only things that matter. We can all have a good business, but focusing on humans, contributing to jobs. I mean, that was my motivator to even take this risk is because I thought of all the people who are employed um, because of voices or call center employees. Um, they are large organizations, like it's it's employees, <laughs> like they would lose their jobs. So I take the same approach within numerical, the number one priority uh, are our employees. So if you set that as a CEO, as the number one priority, all your decisions will be based off of that. So we are not frivolous mm -hmm. in how we spend um, I wouldn't I wouldn't be a good mom if I did not consider my children first before the purchases that I make. Like it's it's mm. just the same thing. So that's the same way that I approach the business. Um, and, and in fact, a lot of these layoffs that are happening, um, it really kind of aggravates me when I hear a CEO going, this is a very difficult decision. And it's like, no, talk to me about the difficult decision that affected you personally, not the one that mm. you was a difficult decision to affect all these other people. Um, mm. so I, you know, I make those decisions. I think it's our job as founders to take the greatest risk. Don't push that onto your employees. That also means that I'm not hiring people just to hire people, right? Every person you bring into the organization has to be contributing to the growth. So it just disciplines you in every area of the company. And then that is felt by the employees because they feel like they are a priority. They feel like they are number one. We just all happen to be here doing a really wonderful thing for the industry, but they are a priority, their mental health and their families as well. So that's that's the culture in America. That is great. And I um, agree with that 100%. Are you um, remote, in-person, yes. hybrid? 
We are remote. Um, we've been remote since day one. And we were remote before the pandemic. So when the mm -hmm. pandemic hit, we didn't skip a beat. I mean, this is this yeah. is the lifestyle that we're used to. So that allows for, um, you know, if employees have Thanksgiving lunch at the elementary school and, you know, it's grandparents yeah. day, be there. Like, don't, yeah. don't miss out on any of that. <laughs> right. There's nothing that's important uh, and numerical that's yeah. above that. So that's one of the ways that we do have it within the culture. Um, it is, it, it's not just words, it's, it's the actual actions that we take and how we support each other. Uh, and that will call people out if you're working on your vacation. Don't do it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, thank you so much. We are so delighted to be on this journey with you and to watch this growth. It's the best part of what we do here at Lighter is we get to work with the most fascinating people on the planet and be a small part in what they do. So um, we wish you the best going forward and look forward to continue to work with you. Thank you. And we appreciate finding um, a partner whose values reflect ours. I think that's a big part of why this is so successful. So thank you for taking the approach that you do. Thank you again to our guest, Rebecca Johnson, the founder and CEO of Numerical. If you'd like to learn more about her business, you can go to www.numerical.com. That's N-U-M-E-R-A-C-L-E.com. Ready to fuel your future on your terms? Subscribe to Bootstrap The Lighter Side. You'll get ideas for growing your startup from other successful founders who grew their businesses without giving up equity or control. This podcast can be found on Apple and Google Podcasts or directly at lightercapital.com slash podcast. Until next time, keep your runways long and keep those lights on.